Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to the beginning of a new season here on the Thos Hermes podcast. And this is already season five, and I'm really happy to be back and to have you back. Thank you for tuning in today. Today is July the 5th of 2020, so the second half of the year has started and the new season has therefore started as well. In this episode, which is called Labyrinths and Treasures, we will speak to Frater Acker, and I'm very happy to have him back on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. More about that in a minute. I am welcoming all of you who are here for the first time on the podcast and all of you who have returned and there are more and more of you who do that um welcome back um, i see that in spite of the week that we were taking off between the two seasons many of you have used the opportunity to listen back into a little older episodes and i think that's really great because it shows your interest it shows your fidelity and it makes me happy. Well, I hope you like that as well. Great. Um, well, uh, for all of you who are new here, I'll just give you a quick hint. If you want to know everything about this podcast, if you want to see older episodes here, older episodes, of course, if you uh, want to get information and all the show notes, go on the website. It's www.thoshermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. And also, if you wish to give me some feedback, I would be more than happy to receive that. Go also on the website where you find several opportunities to leave me feedback, even voicemail, or just send me an email on info at thoughthermes.com. And in particular, I want to thank all of you who over the last few weeks have been contacting me in general and especially when they wanted to let me know about their music because I have asked you about that. Um, as you know, I always play music in this show and I like to play music who is by our listeners. Many of you have responded to that. Well, many, quite quite a few, to be honest, and over the next few weeks we will play music by you, the listeners, exclusively, starting next week. But um, that does not mean do not continue sending me your music. I always need you one, you know, we have a show every week, and it would be great to have more and more music of our community here played on this podcast. So thank you for that. I would also like to let you know that uh, you should be on the lookout for new events around the Toth Hermes podcast and especially about a new feature I'll start in very early August, which is called the Thoth Hermes Academy. Um, 
And the Academy will be an exciting new thing where interesting people will hold lectures where you can be live guest and can also discuss with them live. I don't say more for the moment. Within the very next days, I guess, already maybe tomorrow, Monday, or maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. So in two or three days from today, the release date, uh, which is July the 5th, you will get the news about this and stay tuned either on the website or on uh, the Facebook or Twitter groups for the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Thoughts Hermes Academy, an exciting new feature. I would also like to thank all of you who are patrons of the Thoughts Hermes podcast and thank you for supporting this venture it's without you it were not possible to be maintained and i'm really grateful for your help um, and that is to be saying also that yes please if you have the possibility if you want to help this podcast to exist and to continue to exist please become a patron go to the patreon website www.patreon.com and look for the thoughts hermes podcast page there uh, but it's much easier also if you went on the Thoth Hermes podcast website, thothhermes.com, and click on the Patreon button there. That'll bring you exactly on that page. And become a patron. Uh, we need you. We need your support. And uh, we are very grateful for it. Without you, as I said, we cannot sustain such a venture as this because it costs money and uh, it's not about earning money through your donations. It's about making this possible for everyone. So thank you for your continued support. And um, please consider becoming a patron. And if you prefer doing a one-off donation, that's also possible on the same web page, thoughthermis.com. You'll find the donation button for a one-off donation to help to this podcast to live. Right. Um, well... Why not start right away with a piece of music? And today's music is by the English group called Twelve Hides. Um, I have to thank our guest today, Frater Acker, who pointed me towards them. And so today it's a little bit also his choice why we play this music. Um, the first piece of this music, which is very Arabic influenced, I would say Egyptian influenced, and you see that by the title of the first piece, it's called 57th Step of the Pyramid. Twelve Heights, to all of you who know Glastonbury, of course, also by the name of the band, you can see that they are very much into the esoteric thinking, I would say. Um, it's a kind of meditative psychedelic music almost but whatever you uh, judge for yourself i really like the music and thank frater acker for what he uh, uh, proposed to me and so we are now going right into that first piece once again it's by 12 heights and called 57th step of the pyramids <laughs>
57th Step of the Pyramid by 12 Heights, a UK-based musical group, and you'll find their music on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. I will post the links with that into the show notes, of course, as always. And here in the background, there are the church bells again. Well, it seems like always when I record something with Frater Acker or now as I do the intro to Frater Acker, there are church bells ringing out there. I don't know what that means, but at least it gives you guys all an impression of lovely Austria where that happens rather frequently. <laughs> okay, so yes, Frater Acker is back on the Thought Hermes podcast and I'm really excited about that. It's been two and a half years almost exactly that he was here for the first time. Uh, back then and Frater Acker as you know he's one of the really interesting guys in magic here in over in Europe he is a rather youngish guy still and his books his website and all that he has to say is really highly interesting and he is also very well received as much as I know by all of you guys um, and I'm very proud to say also that um, so far, at least, uh, uh, the Thought Hermes podcast is the only podcast where he has appeared. So his interview two and a half years ago was the very first podcast um, that he did. And now this is the second time that he does one. And he's again back with us. And well, it makes me a little proud, but I'm extremely happy, especially because it's really lovely to talk to him. And he has such great things to say. So before I forget, um, we, he also agreed already in advance that if you, the audience, had questions for him, if you were going to uh, put those questions forward to me here via email, via the feedback that I mentioned earlier, um, to the Thought podcast within the next couple of weeks or so, he would be happy to do, as we had done before with David Beth, he would be happy to do a question and answer um, intermediate uh, episode for the Thought Thermit podcast for you guys, for you, the audience. So you should probably jump on that occasion. It'll be absolutely free, of course, and you just put forward your questions to Frater Acker if you have any, and we will try to collect them and answer as many as possible by them. So, well, if we get enough, so go to your computer, send me an email, and ask Frater Acker your questions, not just about what you hear today, but about anything that you might have seen on his website or heard about him or read in his other books. Good. Well, uh, the reason why he appears here today is the immediate release in the next few weeks of his latest book called Black Abbott White Magic. And as I am going to take the habit to read uh, little excerpt from the book that we are going to present or to hear today. Um, well, that's what I'm going to do now. And I will read to you the first two paragraphs from the introduction 
to Black Abbott White Magic by Fraud Raker, which will appear at Scarlet Imprint in the next couple of weeks. And that will give you, I think, quite an interesting impression on what the book is about and also about what the interview is going to be about in the next hour. Here we go. This is a book on Johannes Trithemius. This is also a book of labyrinths and treasures. A book made from equal parts of cunning deceit and genuine magic. A book with a worldly facade and a hidden chamber, patiently waiting to be discovered by a curious mind. None of this should be any surprise, given the iridescent nature of our protagonist. The original man behind many of the legends now attributed to Dr. Johannes Faust, teacher of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, magical role model to John Dee and Paracelsus, and to this day one of the world's most renowned cryptographers. In entering his world, the world of this book, we should be careful. We shall step warily into this man's past and into the maze of stories, lore and fables he seeded for us in countless letters and manuscripts over the course of a lifetime. On a journey such as this, stepping stones can turn into trapdoors, ink might be poisoned and manuscripts are written in layers, each one containing its own hidden leads and secret keys. After his death, people began to call Trithemius the Black Abbot. His enigma was as startling to his contemporaries as it is to us. Was his infamous occult reputation nothing more than a deliberate act, a daring, lifelong personal campaign aimed at gaining access to the wealthy and powerful? Or was it the byproduct of a life lived in genuine service to the arcane arts? Even 300 years after his death, our protagonist's name remains synonymous with forbidden knowledge. Throughout his life, he dealt in secrets and keys and consciously kept the general key away from the public. Okay, this is how this great book, Black Abbot White Magic, begins. Even though it's not yet been released, I was happy to see the manuscript here and have it with me. So I can tell you it's going to be great. And let's now go and meet Frater Acker. Just to let you know also that in about 30 minutes, we will take, as always, that little musical break in the middle of our interview. And we will be back with that music. Um, okay, now off to Frater Acker. Welcome. Here comes the interview. And this is now a wonderful moment for me because we are opening finally season five of the Thought Hermes podcast. And it's a very special opening because I have here in front of our microphone somebody who is very special and I'm very happy to have him back also. And I say welcome and good evening to Frata Arkar. Hello there. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back. It's great to have you back. It's, you know, it's been 
almost exactly two years and a half. It's enormous how time flies. And well, December 17, you were here the first time. And I think it was then back then your first podcast appearance ever. And I'm very proud that it was your first one then. So it's great to have you back. And um, well, I want to start uh, our little discussion here, even though we have a very special occasion, of course, also why we meet here today. But I would like to ask you first, well, what has happened in your magical being, in your magical life since we last spoke two years and a half ago? I think many things as far as I get it from your postings, from your website, etc. But tell us a bit about it. Yes, love to. Thank you, Rudolf. Um, I would actually say that the last two and a half years um, were a complete continuation of where I was when we last spoke, um, which which leads me um, to a saying that um, one of my favorite authors ever, uh, Gustav Meyrink, um, mm-hmm. once said. I actually think he put it into the into the um, mouth of a character in one of his novels. And uh, if I remember it correctly, um, the character says the secret of eternal youth is not to look at constantly new things to the very same old eyes, but to look at the very same things through constantly new eyes. And I remember when I read that the first time, um, there was just such beauty to this, you know, especially in a world, you know, um, that I was in 20 years ago or so that, um, you know, uh, was, was all about uh, doing short trips to different parts in the, in the planet and, you know, uh, physical reach became important, you know, the internet became, uh, um, prevalent. And so it was every, everything was about seeing new things. So there was real beauty in going into the opposite direction and say, well, what if we looked at the very same thing for a really long time and, and then figured out what we, what we see. Um, so from that perspective, um, I think where, where I was when we last spoke, obviously, uh, we, we discussed the Holy Diamond book um, and the background to the Holy Diamond book uh, was absolutely my own magical work that I've been doing at that point, roughly 10 years or so. Um, and uh, really, I think I've been working with the same spirits, with the same um, current uh, exactly over the last uh, um, two and a half years since then. Um, I will say a lot of that work happened outside of the magical circle. Um, and uh, that was another um, significant learning for me that once you're actually connected to um, these spirits, uh, you can talk to them all day long in, in any kind of situation, wherever you are. Um, so I've, I've come to know the um, circle of the art, so to say, as um, a real kickstart, you know, a real incubator maybe to your magical experience and um, what you want to achieve. But once you have been going through that experience, uh, it then becomes an everyday interaction, an everyday uh, experience. So let me be more specific um, on on kind of how this continuation uh, played out. Um, In fact, while I was writing the um, Holy Diamond book, and in particular, once I had uh, that book finished, Um, There was another project in between that I've been working on for a very long time. Um, It was actually in form of a novel, not a a nonfiction book. And I really got stuck with that novel at a certain point. Um, That novel was born out of uh, um, a 
piece of um, magical work that I've been doing for many, many years together with a friend, um, but that's um, work that I can't speak about. So it was my attempt to um, express that magical work in a novel. I had written um, a first novel that um, was never published and needed to go into the land. So I buried that novel because it was stories that was meant for the land. Mm -hmm. And there was a second part to this novel. And so I got stuck with that one. Um, and then through the great help of a friend, I realized why I got stuck. Um, and that really was an important turning point for me after I had finished the Holy Diamond um, book and then began this this second uh, book in what then turned out to be a cycle, really, because what I really realized was that I needed to write more about power, um, both magical power as well as worldly power. Mm-hmm. And in particular, what I needed to write about was how to use power for good cause. And that became really apparent to this uh, failed novel, if you want, um, because that novel was very much about the opposite. That was uh, about what we know, um, you know, day in, day out um, these days, which is about how power corrupts people and how it really has a very detrimental effect on uh, the person who holds the power, but also, you know, how they then show up in the world. And so really the pivot of my work since the Holy Diamond book, if you want, was the core question how do you need to show up as a human being so that you can hold significant amounts of worldly or magical power and don't get corrupted by it? And to me, I I did not explore this so much to find an answer for myself. It it has, of course, significant relevance for me as a magician and as a professional. But more importantly, I needed to explore this because it almost felt as if we had stopped this dialogue or this conversation as a society. You know, we're so obsessed looking to places where power is corrupted that at least from what I can see, there's no such thing as a clearly articulated ideal of how you do not get corrupted by power because for for no one to have any power any longer that's probably not an option there will always be people who have a certain amount of power we we always are empowered at least over our own lives so how do we do this with a a certain sense of maybe you want to call it nobility or um you know the the right way of behaving with that power um open to you so that really i think is is the pivot of the work um, that I'm doing. And to me, the expression of white magic, you know, as it's relevant for for this upcoming book in particular, is really through this lens. You know, how do you use magic as a particular sort and form of empowering you and giving you um, access to certain powers? How do you use it in a way that makes the world around you a better place? Not a place that's shaped according to your own ideals only, but better for the ecosystem that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, there are a few a few questions that arise from that for me. Um, isn't power a very good and a very central example, but for a whole problem as as in general, that when you look at certain things only in a negative way, even though they're necessary because the balance has to exist. I mean, as a magician, we all know that, right? Um, is that not a more general problem, not only linked to power, but to all kinds of um, experiences, so to speak? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's always about uh, balance. But um, 
I, I think that answer is actually too simplistic at this point. You know, power is a poison. And I, I, I certainly cannot find a lot of social and a lot of magical dialogue at this moment in time where people are talking about what does it take to really coexist well with this poison, not to avoid it, lean into mm -hmm. it, but, mm -hmm. you know, absorb it, deal with it in a way that is sustainable, scalable, that creates, you know, an environment of posit positivity for you and for others around you. So, you know, it's very easy in a world that's full of Twitter and Trump and, you know, Brexit and, you know, mm -hmm. what have you and COVID-19 and all these things that we have. Um, it's very easy to get just get washed away with that sense of apocalypse and how terrible everything is. And, you know, yeah. it's, very, it's a very easy time to be cynical. Um, and I don't think that anybody who wields uh, even the smallest amount of power has the right to be cynical. Cynical is being cynical is very easy. You know, giving up is very easy. Yeah. And it's almost as easy to say every let's rule out everything that is bad and only everything is good. And it's just as dangerous. Exactly. Yes, mm. exactly. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully at the end of this is a very mature uh, perspective. And, um, you know, actually this might lead nicely into the conversation about the book, because at the end of the day, it is not about black. It is not about white. At the end of the day, it's about gray. And how do you accommodate yeah. your life in a, in a magical world that is full of gray, but also in a human world that is that is full of gray? Absolutely. Maybe I just remind our audience that we talked today and that's the, that's, that's the reason why we meet today um, about the book that is about to be released very, very soon, which is called Black Abbott White Magic. So that's why we're talking so much about black and white. But before we go into that, Acker, um, you just mentioned something that I find really interesting. Hey, you love my ring and I'm so happy because so many of people I speak here mention my ring and I really love him as well. But um, He's, you said that you work outside of the magical work. So your, your profane work, so to speak, has, since we last spoke, really been influenced by your practice. Um, would, you, would you be able to expand a little more on that? Because I find it's a very important and interesting point. Yeah, um, certainly I can speak about this um, uh, in, in certain boundaries. Um, so five years ago, so I don't know whether we touched on that in detail when I was with you last, but five years ago, roughly, um, I uh, took down my previous temple. Um, that was the last one um, that I really formally held um, and operated in. Mm. And uh, I had a significant stock of um, self-created paraphernalia um, that I built up over you know, a period of 15 years or so. Um, and I took all of these and buried them out in the forest, um, you know, because it was a certain act that was required at my magical journey at that time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also with a very clear magical intent, you know, these paraphernalia were a part of who I was and who I still am. And burying them out in the land means that you're burying a part of yourself. So part of my spirit is still in these objects and yeah. uh, them being buried in that land means, you know, you merge yourself to a certain degree um, with that particular piece of land. For me, that's Bavaria, where I live. But you also bury yourself in Malkut. You know, it doesn't matter where that earth is. It is earth as such. Mm -hmm. um, so since then, and then in particular over the last um, two and a half years, I'd say um, 
the the magic is always with you. It's always there. The the only problem is that you normally don't see it. So uh, most of all, it's really the magician that requires all the theater and all the drama to switch off your everyday sense and to get into whatever kind of um, gnosis you need, whatever kind of trance you need, so that you can switch your perception from the outside to the inside, or you know, from a mundane um, level to a visionary level, whichever kind of um, dichotomy you want to choose and at least for me as I progressed with my work I began to realize that um, veil if you want between these two worlds becomes increasingly um, flexible or transparent and it's much easier to see how these two things coexist so you know to make this a bit more pragmatic um, I would begin to see that in my everyday job, I'm suddenly confronted with questions and challenges and problems that are totally at the heart of my magical work. And had you asked me 10 years ago whether there is a crossroads between the kind of magic that I was doing and then a rather mundane everyday job, I would have totally denied it and said, no, well, there can't be. But again, you know, uh, maybe the, the secret of eternal youth is to look at the same things through constantly new eyes. So um, today I see plenty of crossroads everywhere. And I do remember um, one conversation that I had uh, years ago with Josephine McCarthy. And we were talking about this point. Um, and uh, I think I had a particular ethical dilemma that I was in at work and I was asking for her opinion on it. Um, and as part of that, uh, she uh, she kind of laughed and she said, well, you know, aha, um, the magician within you is always present. You know, the magician within you doesn't care whether you're in the circle or not. And, and really the magician, the word magician, is really just um, a term uh, for the gate, like you are a gate and, and things are coming through this gate and that gate is always open. So right. if you enter a room, um, doesn't matter what your profession is, if you enter that room consciously as a magician and you keep that gate open, you bring a lot of spiritual change with you. You bring a lot of influences with you that otherwise would remain gatekeep it and, and they would remain outside of that uh, that room. So I'm, I'm not sure how pragmatic that sounds to people who haven't experienced it, but I can tell you anybody who has experienced it, I think it's incredibly uh, pragmatic. Well, I would hope that to many of those who listen here, it might sound Maybe not familiar, but at least they know exactly what you mean. Also, pragmatically, I think I, mean, I would hope so. Uh, it did sound to me like that in any case. Okay, okay so um, you were speaking about the Holy Daemon. We were speaking about the Holy Daemon previously here. Well, let's now delve a little bit into the reason why we meet here today. Now, the reason is that it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Acker, but the, the very reason is that uh, a new book by yourself is about to be released by Scarlet Imprint by the name, as I said before, of Black Abbott White Magic. And it is like a sequel, the second volume of a cycle, as it's been announced of the Holy Daemon that we already spoke about. And it, this book speaks mostly about a historical person by the name of Johannes Trithemius, who lived in the 15th century in Germany. Um, and maybe it would be a good idea if you told us a little bit about that person, that historical person, and then lead over to what brought you to, to that book. Yes, totally. H happy to do that, uh, Rudolf. 
So um, Tritemius, and I'm going to pronounce his second name in German because I have no idea uh, how to do that in English. I'd probably just butcher it. Um, well, I try to do it, but uh, please forgive me if I butcher yeah. it as well. <laughs> so so uh, the, the, the German version is Tritemius. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he, he actually, you know, has been a rather... Um, magnificent mind and important author um, in the Western tradition of magic, um, but he's somewhat overlooked. Um, and to be perfectly honest, even after years of research now, um, I'm, I'm actually not quite sure why he has been overlooked in that way. Um, if you if you tie back in time to um, his lifetime and his impact, it's actually quite obvious to see how, you know, famous magical figures today like John Dee and Edward Kelly um, would have never been able to do the work that they did um, without Tritemius. And actually in one of the um, uh, famous uh, images of uh, Kelly, um, he actually holds a book in his hand and it says Tritemius on the title. You know, that was how important uh, the work of Tritemius okay. was to um, the work that Kelly and, and Dee did together with the angels. But even more, um, maybe closer to Tritemius' own life, because he never met, obviously, with uh, Dee or Kelly, that was posthum. Um, he very much uh, had uh, Agrippa as a student and uh, Agrippa, when he wrote his um, three books on occult philosophy, um, these were very much inspired uh, by Tritemius and he acted, uh, you know, like a, a mentor, a tutor, if you want, um, and help uh, Agrippa put this together. And then there's the famous, um, well, quote or, or maybe just claim that Paracelsus also was a direct student of Tritemius. That's a very, a little bit hard to, to pin down um, because they clearly lived during uh, the same period for a while. And uh, both men were traveling um, far and very extensively. Um, so it might have very well been that they met each other, uh, exchanged um, ideas. Tritemius would have been older. Paracelsus was still relatively young. Um, but we don't have uh, any written record of, of that. Uh, and maybe most um, interestingly, from a mythical point of view, uh, a lot of the legends that nowadays we find ascribed to the infamous figure of Faust and the whole magical literature on Faust um, subsequent on that, they actually were myths and legends that started with Tritemius. And then over time, they were transported from Tritemius onto Faust as he became the more prominent name, household name, if you want. Uh, right. To depict uh, the rather dubious um, uh, persona of of the black or white magician, whatever, whichever way you want to look at it. So there's plenty of reasons to be excited uh, about Tritemius. There's plenty of reasons of why a sharp look at his work is long overdue. Um, and quite frankly, long overdue by people who um, are way more capable than I am in, in doing that. You know, I'm not a historian. Um, I actually have quite little time um, during during my normal days um, to, to research, to write, um, to work in magic. Um, um, uh, but, you know, for some reason, um, it, it felt to me maybe um, to write about Tritemius in particular from a magical um, perspective. There are some good articles, um, some good uh, books even um, on him from a slightly more academic perspective. But even in these, uh, the actual chapters or the actual time spent discussing Tritemius magic um, is, is very, very little. It's very few. It's a few uh, sentences, a few pages uh, in most. Now, there's one reason 
one possible reason um, why that is and why people have shied away um, of touching on Tritemius and really dedicating more work to him. Um, you know, we spoke about the difficulty of handling power and how power, you know, can be uh, poison. And, you know, you need to learn how to handle that poison or, you know, it will poison you. Um, and the, the figure of Johann Tritemius is an incredibly complex figure. Um, very, very hard to nail down. Um, and there are multiple theories why that is, but he was the most complex and the most paradox um, character. I'll, I'll just give you uh, one example. Um, he wrote a book relatively late um, in his life um, that would become um, a, a very important uh, book later on in the witch hunts. And uh, as part of that book, actually, um, quite Frankly, he's propagating um, uh, witch hunts and he's making some um, really terrible claims over, you know, village people and, you know, folk magic, etc. So there are scholars who today would say that actually he was to no, um, to no small degree an instigator of the um, the witch craze that we saw later on in the 16th century. Um, and yet at the same time, that very book, you can read it through a different lens. And if you do that, it actually gives you a lot of information on the grimoire tradition, on the specific details, what kind of magical information to find in, um, in which grimoire. And for a very long time, uh, actually, a particular chapter in that book was used as the um, authoritative quote on grimoires and how they tie together in their historical um, um, uh, lineage. Mm -hmm. So you very often encounter with Tritemius um, like a broken mirror. You're not quite sure what you're actually seeing. You know, the information is relevant, but it's very hard to read it. It's very hard to make sense of it. The most mm -hmm. famous example of this by far would be his book, um, uh, famously never finished. Uh, there's a missing book or a missing chapter in this book um, called Steganographia. Mm -hmm. And this steganographia, depending to whom you speak, um, you know, most uh, academic researchers today would say that it is actually a book on cryptology that hides under a thin veneer of acting as if it was a grimoire. So it kind of dresses up as if it was a magical book, but really what it is, it's a book about codes and how to decipher codes. And yet you could read it from the other lens and you could say, no, actually, you know what, this whole thing about the codes that actually do exist in, in this book is just uh, uh, a narrative of justification to actually write a book about angels and magic. Um, he always left it open. He would never tell you, um, you know, uh, which way to read it. But entering the life of Totemius does mean you're entering um, a, a space that is full of trapdoors, labyrinth, right. and very hard to decipher messages. I don't know if this is possible, but where do you put him? Do you think he was that as a personality himself, he was that strange personality who didn't place himself in a certain place? Or was this a trick to he played in order to hide himself from maybe the church authorities? Or how, how would you how would you see that personally? Um, 
<laughs> you know, uh, I've, I've thought about this for quite some time now, obviously, having spent so much time with the good man Tredemius, um, there's a beautiful German word that I actually can't translate. And that word means if you're incredibly gifted in a very small arena of life, but maybe not so gifted outside of it. We call it Inselbegabung, right? Which yeah, means like yeah. you're, you're, you're very gifted in this island of skill, but around it might be an ocean where you're where maybe not so skilled. Um, I would say that Tatimus was an absolutely incredible mind, you know, really like you, you see his intelligence and the pace of his mind shines through everything that he's right he's writing so you know the the intelligence of the man is out of the question for sure um he was also embodying um this very faustian character trait that we later on through goethe and others then got to know as being a being a faustian feature which means he was an explorer most of all he was curious he wanted to find out and learn about the world and he wouldn't stop he said very famously everything that there is to know i want to know mm -hmm. so there were some of these extraordinary features that you know you find absolutely unparalleled even with later magicians where i think he outshines them by far and that was then coupled with a naivety that you couldn't believe like when you read the letters that he wrote and how he was trying to be part of the major politics of his time, mm -hmm. you really slap your forehead. You know, did you did you really just do this to Like, can we have a conversation about this? Why did you write this letter? Like, that's really not smart. So he showed up on the political stage, um, you know, very much uh, not with the smartness uh, and the wit and the skills that he had when it came to writing books. It's interesting, yeah. But he, he was a Benedictine monk, right? Is that why you call him Black Abbot? Because of the color of their their uh, garment they're wearing? Or do you, I suspect, mean something else behind that? Well, yeah, both. It's a combination. So it's not me who called him uh, Black Abbot. That's a, that's a term that you find in some of the books and some of the references um, uh, to him. So I'm, I'm leaning into this reference um, uh, that I'm finding. But I think there is a, um, a real paradox, like there are many with his work, especially when you delve into his really unknown or very, very little known magical writings, the writings that are really full of magics that he penned himself, which is the heart of the book um, that, that uh, I was trying to write here. Um, you find this paradox that you encounter a person who has a really bad reputation, like he really had through a Catholic lens, right, through the lens of his time, um, he, he was a dangerous man because of what he knew, because of the knowledge that he had assembled in his uh, very, very famous library, uh, because how, how openly he was actually scouting for grimoires all over Europe and bringing them to this place. But he was also a, a dangerous man because, as I said, he was instigating actually, uh, you know, some of the, the witch hunts and, and that mm. craziness. So you see that side of him. And then you look at the actual work, the magical work that he was propagating in these um, texts that are a little harder to find and to access. And to me, these texts are the epiphany of what I would call white magic, meaning magic that is meant to make you a more ethical person, magic that is meant to draw out this notion of if you want to ennoble self 
or connection to your higher genius or to your holy daemon. That is the absolute epiphany of his work. So you have this contrast between his worldly facade, if you want, and then the actual work that he left behind, but that he very consciously hid and he did not speak openly about it. And how did you come across him? I mean, probably the name was familiar to you when you work with magic for quite some time. But why, why did you find out that there were almost hidden texts, one should say, because uh, we come to that in a minute. But um, what attracted you? How did you how did you get into that? So when I when I finished writing the um, the Holy Diamond book two and a half years ago, I remember I, I basically, um, you know, wrote the last sentence of that book and went, was off to Leipzig, um, where there was a, a conference uh, in Leipzig, uh, in the eastern part of Germany, um, around magical books, because they have a very special um, selection of magical books uh, from the 17th and 18th century. Uh, it's actually an almost unparalleled um, collection of grimoires that all were one collection once. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had the you know, privilege and luck to be able to go there and, and visit these books and hold them in my hands it was actually um, a little bit gobsmacking as we were in the reading room of this very famous library. And there were these very old um, uh, books and very expensive books because it was a very small group that attended this conference. Um, they were actually handing out the books and we didn't even need to wear white gloves or anything. And we could really? leave through these books um, wow. that were obviously all handwritten. They were all manuscripts. Uh, now they were copies from older books. So they weren't the originals, but mm -hmm. um, you had everything Still. there like Abramelin uh, ritual. Uh, that were, you know, as I said, from the 17th century. Um, so it was a great uh, moment, a fascinating moment. Um, now that then um, sparked the idea that turned into the Holy Diamond online project, which I started after I had written that book. Yeah. Um, and the idea was to actually tap into the wealth of resources that's out there of, if you want so, white grimoires, so angelic grimoires that particularly talk about what do you need to do to create contact to your holy diamond? So I was presented with, you know, all these great resources and uh, these at that point unpublished materials uh, and, and old manuscripts. And together with a couple of friends, in particular, Anna, um, Anna Hilla, um, mm -hmm. with whom I'm now doing the Paralibrum as well. Mm -hmm. um, we got together and, uh, you know, she has amazing skills and actually transcribing these manuscripts. I had a really hard time deciphering the handwriting, but she could. Um, and uh, then I translated it from the deciphered uh, or transcribed German into English. And, you know, bit by bit, um, we released uh, a couple of uh, manuscripts in a critical edition online, um, you know, scan of the original manuscript and the German transcription and then uh, the English modernized translation. Now, as part of that work, um, we stumbled across a series of longer manuscripts, actually, some of them, you know, in manuscript form, almost 100 pages, by a person called Pelagius, and specifically uh, Pelagius, the hermit uh, from the island of Mallorca. Mm -hmm. And um, these seemed incredibly relevant to the research that we were doing and the material that we wanted to publish, because they were very, very explicitly um, about working with um, uh, your, your personal 
personal angel. And now I'm, I'm, I'm saying this personal angel carefully because as we probably all know, um, there's not one term that, um, you know, in the old days would have indicated what we now probably come to know as your holy guardian angel yeah. or your holy daemon or whatever. Um, terminology is a little bit difficult and tricky there. So we began to translate um, these documents. And uh, of course, as part of that, then began to do some more research to understand, well, who is this Pelagius? Um, and, you know, there has been some good academic uh, research on it, uh, which I'm referencing in the book uh, on that character. And you find that there is a lineage between Pelagius, this uh, mythical um, hermit on that island um, in the late 15th century to a person by the name Libanius, who was a, kind of a student of his, his master student, if you want, mm -hmm. and then from Libanius to Tritemius. And Tritemius writes letters to Libanius and says, oh, you know, it was so great to have you here at my monastery, and we discussed so much, and you know, all of this and all of that. And they often talk about the mysteries that Pelagius would um, reveal to uh, first Libanius, and then through Libanius to Tritemius. Now, in fact, the only reason that we actually know about Pelagius and Libanius, the messenger, is Tritemius. Nobody else before him or afterwards ever mentioned uh, this hermit. Um, so really, that person kind of appeared out of nowhere, and these uh, writings appeared out of nowhere, um, right at the time when uh, Tritemius was uh, at the height of his fame and uh, insights and worldly power, if you want, if there ever was such a thing as worldly power on his end, but certainly, mm -hmm. you know, as part of his uh, magical journey. So there's a very, very strong link between these three uh, characters um, or, or personas. And the, the point of the book that others have made before me, but, you know, I don't think they went deep enough to really um, prove it. The point of the book is that Pelagius actually Actually never existed. Libanius actually never existed. Tatemius just totally made this whole story up in order to find a way to write about the magic as he had reinvented it, as he thought it should be. So magic proper, if you want, in the sense of Tatemius. And by you know, faking this and forging this and writing through the lens of this um, uh, imagined figure, this hermet hermetic figure uh, on the island. That was the way how he could publish it without getting uh, into too much trouble himself, because clearly it wasn't him who was saying that. It was this Pelagius who was saying this. And there was also this messenger who had been at his uh, monastery, and he was just kind of getting all these good letters and news from Libanius, which, of course, none of it is true. He wrote it all himself. So it put him out of danger of being persecuted and all that. Let's now take our usual little break in the middle of this interview and uh, return to the music that was, as I said before, also an idea by Frater Acker, who suggested me to play this music by 12 Heights that we are going to hear now again, and this second piece is uh, from their same uh, release from 2016, and it is called Deir El Malak, so uh, real Egyptian music, uh, I would say, um, 12 heights, Deir El Malak, here we go.
Deir El Malak by Twelve Heights. Wonderful music, I think, and I want to thank once again Fred Rocker for having helped me to find that. Yes, and so, well, let's return to Frat Rocker right away and continue our exciting talk with him. And we're going to delve more into the life of Tritemius and the book and all kinds of other things with Frat Rocker in one moment. I would like to remind you once more that Frat Rocker will be happy to do a question and answer session in a few weeks here on the Thoth Hermit podcast. If, well, if you send me your questions you might have for him, so do not hesitate and send me messages with your questions. Best would be probably across the website or via email at info at thothhermes.com. Okay, and Immediately after the interview, as usual, we will have a third piece of music, once again by Twelve Heights, of course. And that piece of music will be called Gayat al-Hachim. So, but now, let's go back to Frater Acker. Once you found out about those writings and that Pelagius and, and Libanius and... Um, what made you decide now I have to translate those texts, I have to um, not only translate, but interpret and I would almost say work with them in the book? Yeah, so actually the chronology was a little bit uh, different. Uh, we had already translated um, two of the main texts, which are actually in the book now. Mm -hmm. um, so by um, Pelagius, if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fascinating. Um, I was I was writing my analysis of these manuscripts um, and I was trying to decipher what they were actually trying to teach you, because very often in uh, particularly magical documents and manuscripts of that time, you know, 15th century, 16th century, what the writer will talk um, openly about, overtly about, could very much just be a ruse to put you on the wrong track. And what they write about in the periphery and just give you kind of a glimpse off in a shortened sentences, that actually might be the heart of the book. Um, and I, I'd learned about this because I had studied the Arbatel for many, many years. And the Arbatel, you know, is uh, roughly 60 years um, uh, um, younger than these writings of Pelagius. Uh, so it was influenced by this whole Tritamian uh, magic. But I was just absolutely excited by what I was finding in these uh, writings of Pelagius, in particular in the periphery, meaning in the introduction, in the end, in short comments in between prayers, etc. So um, I was fascinated uh, by this figure and how um, that person, this Pelagius, was able to put things so succinctly. Now, what you find in these um, uh, writings of Pelagius, um, much to the wonder and amazement of many of the scholars who studied these manuscripts before, people kind of got the idea that this person never existed. They were initially all a bit gobsmacked that this Pelagius just appears out of nowhere. It's very rare for um, a person in the late 15th century to actually put their name, their their own name to a magical manuscript, you know, would come yeah. with lots of danger. And here, here's this person who, through this messenger, Libanius, actually teaches magic uh, to people. Um, and yet in these writings, there's no reference to older 
other magical works. And so that was a very unique trait of these books that they come out of nothing, out of uh, out of the blue. Um, they do not reference back to any sort of uh, older lineage, um, but they kind of it's it's almost like a complete self-made man, if you want, in, in magic. Um, and uh, uh, Julien Véronais in his wonderful articles on Pelagius was one of the first to point out the significance of these writings and how a lot of the magic that we later on see in the 16th century and then in the 17th century is impossible to, um, to consider without knowing the writings of Pelagius really well. So long story short, I was totally fascinated with Pelagius and what we had stumbled across. And when I then realized that actually, you know, I'm actually not studying Pelagius, I'm actually studying Tritemius. It's just that, uh, you know, uh, he made it really hard for me to see that. Um, then, you know, I was on fire um, because uh, Tritemius had been a figure um, all my magical life that I wanted to return to, write about, better understand. I wanted to um, tie the work that Agrippa had done into the work that Tritemius had done. Um, his, his critical work um, that is known under his own name is not very well published. There are no critical editions. It's very hard to get into his work. So suddenly there was this door that was wide open to find access to Tritemius through a lens that was entirely unexpected before. And so then I began to read, you know, everything that I could get uh, on Tritemius, but always through the lens how does that information, you know, another biography, another academic study of um, mm -hmm. his writing, how does that give me another piece of the puzzle why he chose to invent Pelagius and write all this magical writings under a pen name? So that was a fascinating treasure hunt, which ultimately led to this book. Does the name Pelagius, which I think etymologically means the man from the sea, um, does that give a hint for you or is that completely innocent? Yeah, there, there is actually, uh, you know, that's the thing with Totemius. Uh, there's a hint in everything. Um, and, you know, if you if you want to go on a great treasure hunt, then I'd suggest read that book and continue to do your own studies, because uh, I'm certainly not as smart as Totemius was. Uh, so I'm 100 percent certain there's probably double the amount of depth and trapdoors and leads into history out there than uh, what I've um, uh, found and what, what I was able to share in that book. I've, I've probably scratched the surface, really. Um, I think the, the most important reference in the name Pelagius is to um, uh, a, a Christian um, uh, philosopher from the fourth century. Mm -hmm. And when you Google the term Pelagius, you will you will uh, normally stumble across that Pelagius. Mm -hmm. um, he was later on marked a heretic and his writings were marked uh, as heretical writings. And when you read these writings of the old Pelagius from the fourth century and you read why they were called um, uh, heretical, that is the unlock and the clue to understand how to practice magic in the angelic realm that creates a human being that is full of self-efficacy and that can hold power without corrupting itself. So Tertemius gave us a very clear lead in that name um, in how you needed to understand the old philosophy of Pelagius and then the, in his eyes, modern magic that he had created around it to really understand the full package. Now, I'm not a specialist of that, but Pelagianism, as far as I remember, is a, some kind of uh, a, a version of dualism, which was then called heretic. Or am I completely off track here? 
Well, yeah, and, and I wouldn't uh, claim to be an expert on uh, Pelagianism, which is a, uh, an important term and, and you know marks the whole current. Um, there are multiple aspects of why the writings of Pelagius in the fourth century and then later on were marked as uh, heretical. Um, the most important, I would say, for, for this lens, for this book, is the importance that he put on free will. And Pelagius right. unapologetically said, everything evil in this world um, everything you know that happens to you in your life, um, at the end of the day, it's all about people are using their free will. Now, we have free will as individuals and we have it as communities, so there is a social aspect to it. But at the, um, at the end of the day, what Pelagius was doing, he was um, cutting the tie that the Catholic Church was trying to create at the time and confine the experience of the sacred and the experience of the holy to the um, Christian community. So you needed to come and go to service in order to participate in the sacred mystery. And Pelagius was very much against that. You know, later on, you would have said he was probably much more a proponent of the Eastern Church. He would have said, well, yeah, you can do that as a community, but you can also totally do that by yourself. And really what you need to immerse yourself in is the mystery of your free will and how you're using that free will. Sounds very early 20th century somehow. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Um, okay, but um, you were talking about lineage, lineage and who, who kind of came after Trithemius uh, with Agrippa, etc. But do you have a lineage back? Where does he get all this from? Or is he, is he taking it down somewhere out of the dark or well that was actually uh, precisely his point he was trying to make um the answer to this question as uh, as hard to find as possible if not impossible mm -hmm. um the the main thing to understand and you know uh, this is um really the heart of the book is that Tritemius was living at a time where the catholic church was an absolute rapid decline Now, on all fronts, you know, it lost spiritual power, it lost um, uh, uh, worldly power, the Reformation was on the horizon, you know, these were the most dire times that the Catholic Church had seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, had you ever asked um, Tertemius, hey, what do you prefer? Do you want a real strong living tradition that is truthful to the past? Or do you want bright, fast innovation that's looking into the future? He would have always answered, yes, please. He would have always said, I want both. You know, yeah, I, I'm not going to choose one over the other. I want both. And so what he was trying to do is he was trying to reform the Catholic spiritual church, not the formed church, the inner church, the spirit of the Catholic um, church. And he saw no way that this could be reformed without introducing magic at the heart of it. And so what he was trying to create is a program, you know, his entire life was a struggle to create a program for what he calls a theologica magica. You know, so a theology that really, you know, rests on strong magic. So um, really what he was trying to do is to take very ancient thoughts around deification, very ancient thoughts around um, theurgy and 
reform these, strip them off their clothes and uh, the time that they came from, the words that were used, purify them in his eyes. That's, you know, he, he had, of course, uh, Catholic eyes um, and um, not take away from the power, not take away from the efficacy and then to offer them up again in this um modernized new version in this white version that he felt could sit in any church it could sit in any monastery it could be it should be practiced by everybody um so he was trying to, he wasn't a very elitist program if you want he was in a very mm -hmm. elitist path but he was really trying to reform the church in a way that of course you can call it completely naive and uh, he struggled quite a bit in his lifetime um to uh, to make any progress and obviously it didn't prevent the reformation in the, in the long run <laughs> certainly not didn't no um talking about motives you were talking about his, his motives but uh, i stumbled positively across a, a phrase in the introduction to the book that you wrote about the motives why you why you wrote it and the third motive you mentioned there i call it the third motive of this book is to restore the practical details of the magical program Trithemius pursued for his entire adult life. Now, in this book, what can the reader expect from that point of view? Is it a grimoire in the end? Uh, or how would you, how did you, how did you respond to that motive of showing those practical details? Yeah, you know what, this this is an interesting one. Um, I, I actually think this book is so inspired by Tatemio's spirit that it actually turned out to be a book in layers itself. Um, and and once I understood that, which, which was probably halfway through the book, that um, this was meant to be a book in layers, I actually got comfortable with it and writing in that way. Um, I think there's a layer of um, history to it. There's a layer where... I want the reader to just understand how this puzzle fits together. And, you know, I would hope that English speaking readers through that book find access to Tritemius and can connect him to Agrippa and to Paracelsus and certainly to Pelagius and that work. So there's a clearly historical um, uh, layer to it. Mm -hmm. Then I would hope um, on a completely separate layer that it's a continuation of the Holy Diamond book. And in the Holy Diamond book, you know, I took the liberty to really major on my own experience. And then from my own experience, by going back to the PGM, you know, bring forward some um, ritual support, if you want, and how you can create your own experience. Mm -hmm. So I would say on this other layer, it's very much a continuation of this thought process. And we take a look at Tritemius and how he promoted making contact to your holy daemon through magic. Now, this is the point where um, Tritemius' personality then gets so interesting. Tritemius would never give you um, uh, a grimoire that step by step takes you from, you know, uh, getting up in the morning to meeting your holy diamond at night, right? That's not the mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, because he understood the complexity of life and he understood the complexity um, of, of magic in particular. So I can tell you what I gained in this reading of his grimoires is a much more truthful and deeper understanding of how magic actually works. And in particular, um, 
I would think readers of that book from a pure practical point of view will find handholding in the best possible sense and advice on how to create a lifestyle for themselves, how to really look out into the world that any kind of magic that they want to embark on will become so much more easy. So it's, it's almost the reverse of a grimoire. The, the grimoire describes the 30 minutes that you spend in the, in the circle of the art. And this book, through Tritemia's voice, really takes the opposed perspective and say, well, yeah, don't worry about these 30 minutes. Worry about your rest of the day and how you spend the rest of your day to attract the right spirits towards you. So from that point of view, I think it's uh, incredibly important. And then, you know, as I was really um, discovering later on in the writing process, it also builds a bridge to the third book in the series, in this Holy Diamond cycle, um, where we will take a look much further back in time and we'll go all the way back um, to, um, you know, the first and the second century and, and learn about the magic there and how it informed many of these practices. So it's also a stepping stone in that cycle and will, will make mm -hmm. um, reading all three books much more enjoyable. Right. What you said just before about not the 30 minutes you practice magic, but the rest of the day, that reminds me clearly of what you said in the beginning of this interview, what has happened to you over the last two and a half years, um, that somehow you integrated, so I think that may be the word, um, your practice into into daily life is that is that what is meant by what you just said yeah yeah th there's more i can i can if you want i can be really specific about this so mm. um from a magical perspective from a magical point of view um you as a human incarnated being you don't really exist you know there is something that exists uh, in the long run that is powering this thing that you are but it's really the engine right it's really it's really a different thing than what you see mm -hmm. what you see is really a puzzle that is held together by your skin and just because that skin exists doesn't mean that this puzzle underneath it actually belongs together the moment you die all the pieces fall to the ground and and you know the puzzle is is mm -hmm. going back to where it came from mm -hmm. so if you operate off that notion that actually you know Rudolf as a human being is kind of just made up of a lot of small components they're stolen they're stolen from the elemental realm they're stolen from the stars they're stolen from you know malkut and and all of this was stolen to uh, you know create this front end that we now have the pleasure of meeting and calling rudolph mm. right mm. now from a magical point of view that gives you a direct access route because that means if this really is a puzzle then you can play with it Then you can exchange pieces. You can take pieces out and put other pieces in. Now, what right. people don't understand mostly, certainly what I didn't understand in my first 15 years of magical practice, you do that all the time. You don't only do that when you go into a magical circle and let's say you charge yourself up with the um, elemental realm of fire and you come out of the circle and then for the next two weeks, you know, you're all on fire, literally, mm -hmm. and you realize how easy it is to play with your personality traits, your character traits. It's all just a matter of balance and, and how uh, that balance plays out. That's, I think, what lots of people are familiar with. But what people are not familiar is with is that... 
This puzzle is sending out a radio frequency. That puzzle is vibrating. And depending on how it's assembled, depending on how you chose to put it together and to tune it, that radio frequency attracts shit. And mm. that is what makes up a lot of your life's encounter is how are you in tune with the world? How are you tuning yourself towards the world? So a lot of the magical work for the magic then to work in a split second is really about tuning that puzzle that you are to the frequency that you're aiming for. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, um, uh, one of the core sentences that Pelagius said, so that Tritemius said under the guise of Pelagius mm -hmm. is in order for this magic to work, you have to become alike to the angelic mind. And I've been meditating over this sentence for almost three years now. You know, in order for this magic to work, you have to become alike to the angelic mind. Now, in Jewish magic, you know, in, in, in real deep Kabbalah, um, and we find reference to this again in Gustav Meyering's word, there is this notion of Ibur. And Ibur describes a term where basically you're sharing your soul. You're being impregnated with another spirit. You're drawing in a second spirit into your own spirit. So uh, you become two. And that is just a very extreme form of articulating something that we're doing all the time. That constantly spirits within us, yeah. you know, moving through us, you know, affecting how we're experiencing the world and how we're experiencing ourselves and magic in this sense means taking control over this process mm -hmm. and becoming an operator on eye level with the spirits so from that angle it is way more important what you're doing outside of the circle than what you're doing in the 30 40 50 minutes in the circle because mm -hmm. quite frankly if you haven't done your homework outside of the circle whatever you do in the circle isn't going to be really very grand or majestic at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Absolutely. Well, thanks. Great explanation. Great. We're talking today about the book Black Abbott White Magic that has not even appeared yet <laughs> because uh, I, as we speak, it's late June and I hear the book will be uh, delivered early August. But I think some series uh, are already sold out. So you should still already be interested now, but even before it appears. And as you can imagine, the Scarlet Imprint books are always extremely beautiful and content will be lovely that as much I know because I was happy enough to have a pre PDF here in front of me to 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 be able to talk to you about this um, so much to the audience but um, back to our three themes um, I get the impression that he he very much would like to be in a different, I mean, I'm, I'm pretending that, but he very much would like to be in a kind of a different world, you know, he, he's through what you write about him and even through the text that he lays into the mouth of Pelagius, it sounds to me often that he imagines a better world for himself through that. Um, did you also get that impression or is that something that I'm making up? No, 100%. I think, um, like most great innovators, he was a bit of a dreamer. And mm. that dream, you know, allowed him to think really big. I think 
at the heart of it, though, is an unresolved conflict. Um, and that conflict to me is that, um, you know, in all the setbacks that he had in his own life and, you know, he was constantly dealing with significant setbacks. Uh, you know, he was building up this really, uh, extraordinary Ebby in a time where around him, you know, all the Ebbies were going to pieces. Um, and at the end, the, the monks expelled him because he was too strict and he was just demanding too much, you know? So he just when he thought in his life he had reached his ideal, uh, ideal everything fell to pieces. So I think coming out of that, um, there's, there is a humility, there is a realization that the one thing that is undoubtedly yours is to work on yourself. And the one thing that will also prevent any social progress as a community is if not every single one of us chooses to work on themselves. Um, you know, communities are made up of individuals and, you know, especially as magicians, our work is the work of the individual. Um, and I think that's where he was aiming at. That's what he wanted to rejuvenate um, through a spiritual lens, the idea that the, the relationship to the sacred, the relationship to the spiritual realm needs to be granted back into the hands of the individual and released from the confines of the holy shrine of the Catholic Church, where they keep kept it away so that people would, would pay ransom. Right, definitely. And it's so true. Unfortunately, even now, 500 years later, we're almost 500, well, a bit over 500 years after Tithemius death now. And um, well, I just recently read a text of, by the Catholic Church about Freemasonry. And when you read that and, and compare it to the text by Tithemius uh, and what he complained about, it's it's almost it's almost identical. It's 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 very strange. It's very strange. Um, Acker, this is has again been a wonderful talk. We are not entirely at the end of it yet, because what I would like to know from you now is also maybe a little bit an outlook into the not too near, but in the, into the future. Um, you spoke about the third volume of the trilogy, or maybe it's even more to come after that, um, of, of your book series with Scarlet Imprint. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that and maybe about some other plans that you have. Yeah, ha happy to. Um, I was, um, um, actually, you know, thinking about this, because as it happens, you know, we're, we're now um, launching this book um, on Totemius, which I'm super happy about and very delighted with the amazing work that uh, Alkistis and Peter from Scarlet Imprint are putting into it. It's just an awe um, to see in a time where publishing standards are degrading everywhere um, mm -hmm. to see them really stemming against that and, and doing the opposite and, uh, you know, taking so much care uh, and love into each project, uh, not only mine, every project that they touch. So um, very grateful and feel very humbled um, to be able to publish with them. Um, and, you know, it happens that as we publish this book, I've just finished the next one. So mm -hmm. um, as, as we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm putting the finishing touches on the third book in the series and uh, then it will go on its own journey and it will come out in its own time. Now, of course, I have an interest that uh, that isn't too far out, but, you know, these things have a habit of playing themselves out and uh, that book will sure. come out when the time is right. Um, what I do know from my end is that that cycle that I wanted to write about the Holy Diamond and, you know, really 
um, helping myself, but also helping others, obviously, um, to see this in a slightly different light than maybe literature or modern literature had presented it over the last decades. Uh, I think that cycle is comp completed. I think these three books um, can then, you know, stand uh, by themselves. Um, and so I feel uh, wonderfully liberated um, uh, the by the fact that uh, I do not need to get up uh, at 5 a.m. every morning and then do the chorus and write for two and a half hours or so. Um, cause that pretty much was the experience over the last, um, four years or so. Um, so that's great. Uh, but as it turned out, um, we, we just started a, a new project, um, uh, Frater uh, Ude or Faude in, in the German spelling. Uh, Anna, I mentioned uh, Jose, this wonderful artist from uh, South of America. Um, and we started this project called Paralibum. Um, yes. And it's basically a platform for uh, book reviews, uh, particular occult book reviews. Uh, and I can tell you, I, I was not looking for more work. Uh, it was really born out of necessity, we believe, um, that there's so much good work going on on in the occult um, uh, publishing sphere. Um, and yet, you know, books come out and then almost disappear too quickly. And what we wanted to lean into is a bit more of a dialogue, a bit more of an afterthought and a caretaking of all these great things that are coming out. And we wanted to do that in particular with extremely high standards of quality. Um, and, you know, not having a network where friends promote each other's works, but um, really having an objective uh, expert lens at every single book that we review. So we've started this out. Uh, the page is online. The page is free for everybody. We funded it um, at least for the first year in full. So there are no commercial uh, ties attached. Um, uh, we're not affiliated with any publisher or anything. Uh, and now I'm excited to see uh, where that uh, where that goes. And I can tell you, it's also a fresh uh, breath of air, you know, um, curating other people's books and not needing to worry about writing your own. So it feels very yeah. <laughs> fresh right now. That's good. And I may say now also maybe that um, we have decided with Fratri Yudi and yourself that um, on my Ex Libris shows, which I do every five to six shows here, each time one of those reviews will be presented. Um, so there is a kind of, uh, you had the idea first. I just jumped on the chart afterwards. I am very clear. Um, but uh, it's nice to be on board with you and that Palo Librum will also be part of Ex Libris in the future um, in that redesigned Ex Libris uh, because I also needed to redesign those versions a bit. So really happy yeah, that I, I we do this together. I'm excited about that. I think, you know, everybody has their own preference of how they want to um, digest, um, uh, you know, new content. I do think there are things that lend themselves really nicely to the spoken word, like our conversation right now, that would have been yeah. a very, very long thing to write down. Um, and it can be much more informal um, and casual. And then there are other things where you want, you know, footnotes and you want to be a bit more precise and have more depth. Um, so uh, I, I'm delighted that you bring some of that to your show and will give people uh, the ability to really absorb it, listen to it, you know, really engage in the dialogue about what's going on in the um, bibliophile culture, if you want right now. Um, I think that's great. Thank you. 
No, nothing, but really it's, it's a great project and it's, it's great to have it on board. Well, um, Frat Raker, that was really, really nice to have you here again today. And I'm sure it's not been the last time. Um, it was great also to not only talk about that book, but also about the future that what will come after that, because as you said, that trilogy is important as a whole. And thank you for all the work you're doing. You're doing also that wonderful website, Theomagica, of course, the links to Paralibrum and Theomagica and to all the other stuff will be on the show notes of this of this show today. It was a great opening for season five. Thank you for having been with me today here and um, having to get up early tomorrow morning again. So uh, I let you go now so that you can can go to bed soon. Um, thank you for being with us here today and um, well, keep on the good work. Thank you, Rolf. Always a pleasure. And uh, same to you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you.
Gayat Al-Hakim by 12 Minds UK-based band who was accompanying us today through this episode with their music. Yes, and that was an interview, the great interview, only the second he ever did for a podcast and it was the second time he was on this show, the Thothermis podcast, the great Frater Acker, and we were talking mainly about his book to appear, Black Abbott White Magic, but uh, also about a lot of other things. And well, maybe he'll be back soon if you put me forward your questions to him and we will collect them and do that question and answer episode. Great. Well, that was episode number one of our season five. We have started the new season and I'm very happy about that. And I'm very happy about the ever increasing number of participants, listeners, etc. Well, next week, what happens next week? Um, before I tell you that, I want to remind you that during next week, you should be on the watch uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on the website about that Thos Hermes Academy that we are going to launch because that will be an exciting new feature that we will present. Um, I don't want to tell you more about this, just that it will be live lectures with your possibility to participate live in a discussion with the lecturer and more to hear about that in the next few days and stay tuned for that. Next Sunday on July the 12th, um, there will be a second episode of the season, episode two of the season, of course. And my guest next week will be Professor Dean Radin, a scientist who is very much into the explanation of occult and magical phenomena. Uh, Dean Radin uh, will be with us and my interview partner for that next week. And I think you should all be looking forward to that. Right, that once again was today's episode number one. Thank you all for being with me here today. Thank you for joining the Thoth Hermes community. And I hope to have you all back again next week. Until then, I can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.